I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he'd given orders through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After he'd suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This, he said, is what you heard from me. For John baptised with water, but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, at this time are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he'd said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud received him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Well, I, imagine if God brought revival to our sort of overworked, overstressed, pleasant, pleasure-seeking, unchurched society here in Australia. I mean, it's what we really need, isn't it? Uh, there's not that many people who are in church on Sundays in our country. Maybe it's, uh, have you done the stats, Al? Maybe it's 4 or 5% of people that are in church on Sundays? Yeah, yeah, well, there you go. So there's a lot of work to be done. But I believe it actually can happen. Uh, a book I read some years ago, and I told you this story, I think, uh, in, in the other Geneva Push conference, Grace Gritton Gumption describes this, this happening in Wales at the turn of the last century. It's a story of how God used three men, John Pugh and his two brothers, Frank and Seth Joshua, to reach out with a gospel to the working class uh, people in South Wales. Now, their ministry sought to live out the words of Jesus, who said in Matthew 22, go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. And that, that's, what, that's what inspired them, in a sense. And it began in 1891 in a borrowed tent on a waste piece of ground in Cardiff. And John Pugh and Seth Joshua were setting up this particular tent uh, for an open-air meeting. And one of the rough characters of the area passed by and he said to Seth, he said, Hello, Governor, what's this, a boxing show? Well, there's going to be some fighting here tonight, said Seth. When are you going to start? Tomorrow morning at 11 a.m. Tomorrow Sunday. Well, better the day, better the, de the deed. Who's on? I've got to take the first round, said Seth. Who's with you? He's a chap called Belzebub. Never heard of him. Who's he? Oh, he's a smart one, I can tell you. Come tomorrow morning, I'll be, I'll be there, said the man. And strange to say, he was there, says Seth. When I'd given out the first hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name, he knew that he'd been caught. <laughs> Belzebub went over the ropes, all right, for the chap was converted that very morning, right, Seth? <laughs> And that was the beginning of a great surge of evangelistic activity. Uh, and by God's grace, these three preachers 
became 30 by 1907 and founded what was called the Forward Movement. And in 15 years, 48 churches were planted with over 43,000 people attending those services. And so this morning, I want us to lift our vision away from the details of the week-by-week sort of work that we're involved with and see actually the amazing work of God that he started in Acts and to see that actually we're part of that. We're part of that. That work continues in our ministry. And if we could just see it a little more clearly from the scriptures, I think it'll encourage us and fire us up. The churches being planted in the Geneva Push Network are involved actually in that forward movement of the gospel. And we might be at this stage a relatively small group, but we're seeing the start, I believe, and I hope and I pray of a significant movement for gospel growth in our nation. So this morning I want us to consider the forward movement of the gospel and to help us do that we want to look at the first few chapters of Acts. First of all, where does the forward movement's drive come from? How did it come about? What drives it? And in Acts 1 we see, of course, Jesus briefing his disciples. Just look at those verses there with me. Uh, verse 2, he gives instructions to the men he's, been, he's chosen. Verse 3, he shows himself to these men and gives many convincing proofs that he's alive. He tells them about the kingdom. Verse 4, he commands his disciples to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, he commissions them to be his witnesses from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Verse 9 to 11, he ascends into heaven and is promised to return. Now, it's pretty obvious, isn't it, who's in charge? Jesus, the same Jesus who lived and ministered and died in Palestine, the Jesus of the Gospels, now the risen, uh, living, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, uh, powerful Lord over all, and he's about to establish the forward movement of the Gospel to build his church as he promised, I will build my church. And here before he leaves, he directs the affairs basically uh, uh, and he'll continue to do that from headquarters. He selects, instructs, commands and commissions his disciples to be his witnesses. Jesus is the head of the church, not me and my church, you and your church plant, but Jesus and of the work of Geneva as well. He directs uh, the work of building the church and we're merely his servants his foot soldiers. And how are we to do that work? Well, uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit. So he promises the disciples, verse 8, you will receive power by the Holy Spirit uh, when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses. And so the the word in the Greek there is dunamis, and that's where we get our word dynamite from, and it means explosive power. And this this is the power that propels and and guides and enables the forward movement of the gospel, the explosive, dynamic power of the Holy Spirit. And so we read in Acts 2 that the Holy Spirit came on these disciples and they began to speak about what? They, They began to speak about Jesus and the gospel, the good news of salvation by grace and so on through faith in Jesus. The explosive power of the Holy Spirit entered the world and the church was born on the first Pentecost. And you know, every church, every true church is, is born by that same explosive power. Every true church. As Christ is proclaimed, people are saved and the community of believers grows. It's all by that explosive power of the Holy Spirit. And what we see as we survey the book of Acts is, is actually really astonishing because there's opposition right from the start. The leaders of the day 
uh, try to stamp this, this new faith out. There's brutal persecution of believers. There's trouble within the church. There's division and there's unfaithfulness and there's heresy. And yet what do we see? What does Luke describe through the book of Acts? He describes a joyful, Holy Spirit-inspired expansion of the church. That's what we see from the first chapter to the last, throughout the whole known world from Jerusalem to Rome. And Luke is telling us in Acts that it's actually unstoppable. It doesn't matter what opposition comes, uh, what problems there are in the church, it's actually unstoppable. Nothing can stop the forward movement of the gospel. And you know, that's what we're part of. And here we are in Australia, from the other end of the earth from where it started, telling others about Jesus. We are his witnesses, witnesses to Jesus and his death and resurrection. Who's our head? The ascended, powerful Christ. What is our message? It's Christ in him crucified. What is the power? It's the power of the Holy Spirit. How do we go about it? Speaking the word boldly, joyfully, confidently, sacrificially. Will there be trouble and hardship and persecution? Yes, but there'll also be great joy as we see God's kingdom come. And the question for us as individuals, I think, that comes out of this as the church and as the church uh, is, is this, as ch our church communities, the question for our church communities and for us is this, how well are you connected to Jesus? Because he says, without me you can do nothing. So how well are we connected to Jesus, the, the, the head of the church? It's, it's good to reflect on that regularly, I think. But how does the church grow? A second point, the forward movement's growth. Let me tell you about Africa. In 1900, uh, colonial Africa had a population of something like 8.7 million. There were four times as many Muslims as Christians in colonial Africa. By 1962, there were five times as many Muslims as Christians. But then in the midst of the pessimism and, and turmoil of post-independent sort of uh, Africa or of, of you know, post-colonial Africa when they became independent, Christianity took off uh, under the power of the Holy Spirit and there were an estimated 16,500 conversions for, uh, per day. By the year 2000, the ratio of Muslims to Christians fell from 5.1 to 1.1. There are now well over estimated 30, 360 million Christians in Africa. I ask myself, why not Australia? Couldn't, couldn't we see such a thing happening here? Well, I think definitely. And Paul reminds us how that actually happens in, in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, you know, who after all is Apollos and uh, Paul, only servants uh, through whom you come to believe as each is assigned his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. God grows the church. The forward movement of the gospel is only unleashed through the presence and power of God in the midst of his people who are faithful to his word, led by his spirit, and engaged in his mission. We're not to be passive bystanders, bystanders but active participants in what God is doing. We plant and water, but God gives the growth. I love the story of um, uh, Spurgeon's students who, after some time in ministry, Spurgeon asked one of his students how, how things are going, and he said to Spurgeon, well... Not much is happening, really. And Spurgeon said to him, are you expecting people to be converted every time you open your mouth? 
And the young minister said, of course not. And Spurgeon said, well, that's the problem. If you're speaking the word of God, you should expect people to be converted. And the point is this, we believe in the certain success of the gospel. We're theological optimists because it's God's word and God gives the growth. Yes, God works where he wills and it'll be different in different places. To one he gives 10, another 20 and so on. But everyone, but God wants everyone to come to repentance. That's, that's true. And so we are theological optimists when we preach the word and we do God's work, expecting God to work. I wonder how expectant we are as his people for that, to see that happening. And of course the church will grow by God's arithmetic and we see that in, in, in Acts in the early chapters. First, he simply adds to the church, chapter 2, verse 42, those who accepted Peter's message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Verse 47, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. As the word is preached and people hear it and are saved, Godly simply, God simply adds those people uh, uh, to the church. And that's the usual way God's work works. It's simple addition through conversion. Think about the history of it for a moment. In 30 AD, Jesus is crucified and everyone deserts him. He's the only one left. Three years later, uh, Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, three days later, I should say. Well, with God, a day is like a thousand years. <laughs> three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And the 11 disciples started to grasp the significance of what had happened. Forty days later, the 11 disciples grew to about 120 in that upper room, praying, meeting and praying. And then 10 days later at Pentecost, 120 turned into 3,000 and then 3,000 into 10,000 and so on. According to Operation World, across the globe today, 2,000 new churches are being planted every week. And over 50,000 people became, become Christians every day. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people. Today, 50,000 people. What a great day for the church. And so God adds to the church. But sometimes he also subtracts from the church to strengthen the forward movement of the gospel. Look at Acts chapter 5. Turn with me there to that story dramatic story of Ananias and Sapphira. God took them both out of the church in, pretty, in a pretty dramatic way. They simply fell down stone dead. Why did God do that? Well, Ananias and Sapphira wanted to be like Joseph. The end of chapter 4, we read Joseph sells a property and gives the money to the church, and they nickname him Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. Now, Ananias and Sapphira are probably sitting in the church on the other side of the building there. I wish people were praising us like that. Look at the attention that Barnabas is getting. He sold his field, gave them money, and they called him the son of encouragement. Wouldn't it be marvellous if people said that about us? And so they decided to sell their property and do the same. But they were not like Barnabas at all, were they? They were dishonest hypocrites. They sold the field and, and got the money and pretended to give it all to the church. Nobody knows how much the field sold for. We just keep part of it ourselves and give what's left to the church. People say they're just like Barnabas. They wanted the prestige and credit for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. And so they told a brazen lie. They just wanted to look good and feed their egos, basically. And so they were in the process, they were denying God 
And they'd seen the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. They'd witnessed the miracles and the grace of God. And Ananias and Sapphira deliberately lied to God despite that. That God hates hypocrisy. He's angry with it. He condemns it. We should ask ourselves, is there a fear of God in our churches? A sin excused and tolerated. We dare not let the Ananias and Sapphira club flourish in the church. And so God subtracts from the church for the sake of the purity of the church and, and to enable further growth. Because look what happens in chapter 5, verse 11. Great fear sees the church. Verse 14, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Sometimes God, pe- God takes people out of the church, sometimes sovereignly, sometimes through church discipline, and it's part of God's arithmetic for the forward movement of the gospel. And the story is there for us to learn from, isn't it? God is saying sometimes that's exactly what's needed for the church to continue to grow. And uh, I've certainly seen that in, in, in the years at Kingston happen from time to time. And, and then we see in Acts also that God also multiplies. Look at uh, chapter 6. That's an extraordinary chapter too, isn't it? Verse 1 says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the authorised version actually says was multiplied, sometimes uh, there is a rapid increase. And when that happens, it's often difficult to keep on top of things organisationally. We know that uh, ourselves. If you've had a a large growing church, uh, you know that's true. And it threatens, sometimes if we're not on top of it organisationally, it actually threatens to undermine the work. And that's what we see here in chapter 6. There's favouritism happening. Some of the Grecian widows were not being looked after. And it's actually a bit of a crisis point for the church. Should the disciples give themselves to sorting this out? It would take away from preaching and prayer. What should they do? Well, look how they resolved it in verse 3. Brothers, choose seven men from among you. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So the apostles actually made the mission of the church their priority, to pray and preach the gospel. And in order to do that, they put up a bit of trellis and they appointed a group of gifted men to look after these widows. And what do we see as the result? So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, or in other words, the authorised version multiplied rapidly. That's what happened. Sometimes God multiplies the work. And in fact, the book of Acts is really a picture of a fairly rapid multiplying of not just people, but of churches. I don't think we've seen that here yet through our movement. We've seen some growth. Maybe we're on the cusp of something. That's really encouraging. But it's worth also asking ourselves, why isn't there this rapid multiplication? Why don't we see that sort of growth? worth asking the question and thinking about it. So there's addition, subtraction, multiplication and division in God's arithmetic for the forward movement of the gospel. Uh, And look at chapter 8. Stephen was one of the leaders of the church and he's just been executed by stoning. And it says in verse 1 there, Saul was giving approval to his death And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered through Judea and Samaria. And, uh, you know, as Jesus promised, it's from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. 
it seems that Christians got stuck in Jerusalem and God used that persecution uh, to move them out. And then Jesus said, and in all Judea and Samaria, that's exactly what happened. Verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So God divided them and sent them out, and everywhere they went they talked about Jesus. They weren't apostles or evangelists, they were just ordinary people who were spreading the word, but they loved Jesus and they just told people about him over the fence at the shop down the street. And the way that God sovereignly works in this uh, and allows even sometimes suffering and hardship into our lives and in the life of the church to grow his church reminds me of a story from Corrie ten Boom, one of her books. You know, she went, she was in a, a prisoner of war camp in World War II. And th this is what she writes. When I was in the prison camp in Holland during the war, I often prayed, Lord, never let the enemy put me in a German concentration camp. Then she says, God answered no to that prayer. But in the German camp, we were among many prisoners who had never heard of Jesus Christ. If God had not used Betsy, that's, that's her sister, and me to bring them to him, they would never have heard of him. Many of them died or were killed, but many died with the name of Jesus on their lips. They were well worth all our suffering, even Betsy's death. To be used to save souls for eternity is worth living and dying. In a way, we saw God's side and could thank him for unanswered prayer. Sometimes God uses division to grow his church, to keep the gospel uh, moving forward. It's part of God's arithmetic to build the church. And, and it's an encouragement to us, isn't it? Because sometimes division is a good way to grow the church, to divide up our small groups uh, or even our churches. I remember Peter Woodcock, I, you might remember Mikey, right at the beginning there we, when, when I came to Kingston in those early days, Kingston was a fairly large congregation, and he said to me, why don't you just split it up into three congregations and plant a couple out of that? And um, I thought that was a ridiculous suggestion at the time, uh, but I think there's something really powerful to that. Are we prepared to do that division work so that you know, we can send out groups of people much more quickly than we do now. So that's, the church grows through God's sovereign arithmetic uh, and all through Acts we read over and over, the word of God spread, the many were added, the disciples increased, large numbers were won. That's the forward movement's growth. So where does it all end, the forward movement of the gospel? Well, turn with me to Revelations, we're leaving Acts for a moment, Revelations chapter 7. And we've got this marvellous picture that John gives us late in his life, having seen the church grow under Christ's direction by the power of the Holy Spirit, he has this vision. With God's arithmetic, he has this vision of heaven. Listen to what he, what he sees. Uh, Revelation chapter 7. Verse 9, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing round the throne and, all, uh, and around the elders and the, and the four living creatures and they fell down uh, on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. 
I, I think John was absolutely filled with wonder here. In fact, in the Greek it says, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude. There's a sense of being overwhelmed by this picture, astonished and thrilled. There, here they are, millions of people. The people of God gathered together, millions upon millions of them, who will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. That's what God's mission is all about. These people being with him, in fellowship with him forever. And that's been given to us to encourage us, hasn't it? Because sometimes it's just a real grind. And sometimes, uh, you know, we find it so difficult and we think, oh, you know, what am I doing? We live in a culture that's resistant. There doesn't seem always to be that much fruit. There may be times when you think, well, what can I do? People aren't responding. You know, I try to reach people, but, you know, they turn away. What's the best remedy for that? Well, to lift your eyes, isn't it? To lift your eyes because God is on the throne and he's actually kept his promise to Abraham, hasn't he? Think back. God promised Abraham that, that he would have descendants like the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea. But he actually never saw it, did he? This man never saw it. One son. It's all he saw. It's all he had. But there's... But we're so much better off than Abraham. He's a great man of faith when you think about it. But we're so much better off than Abraham. We have these promises detailed in far, far more detail, much more vividly here in the book of Revelation. And even more than that, we can actually see this working out in history. We can see glimpses of that multitude working out in history. There are now, people estimate, two billion people, Christians on the planet. And that's not even adding all the Christians that have been throughout history that we know about and we can read about. God is, is doing staggering things in Africa, as I said, and in China and in India. They, th they say there's about 60 or 80 million Christians in China. I think that's staggering. That's four times the population of Australia. The multitude is being gathered, and we can actually see it. And it's already far bigger than any vast crowd in Olympic Stadium or those massive uh, crowds of Muslim protests around the world. John saw this vision, the great multitude of God that no one can count. And we need to regularly see that as well. We can read about it in the scripture. There it is. The vision of a great God doing great things and promising even greater things. We need that to keep persevering in the work, don't we? That's where the forward movement of the gospel will take us. So let me finish with a question. What is the crucial part that we play in the forward movement of the gospel? What's the crucial part that we play? Imagine ourselves in that upper room. Imagine if your church plant with a handful of those disciples, uh, you know, just before Pentecost in that upper room, and Jesus had commanded you to go and make disciples of the nations, and it's just you. He's given you the knowledge, the power, the resources to do the job. We have his word and spirit. What would it look like to align our lives to Christ's command to be part of that forward movement of the gospel? that one day will reach every tribe and every nation, every people. What needs to change? What do we need to do differently? And I think we'd probably all agree that it starts with prayer. The story in Acts chapter 4 is just one example, but if you read the, 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 the book of Acts, prayer is such a big part of it. 
It's an incredible story in Acts chapter 4. The apostles Peter and John heal this crippled, name in the, uh, crippled man in the name of Jesus and are threatened by the authorities and thrown into prison for talking publicly about him. And they're told not to speak of him again. And when they're released, the whole church actually gets together to pray. And they pray about this crisis. But they don't ask for personal safety, do they? They ask, actually, what do they ask for? They ask for boldness. Boldness to continue to talk about Jesus. And what was the result? Verse 31, they are all filled with the Spirit and they spoke the word of boldly and then the multiplication and addition and so on continues. And right through history, whenever the church has been renewed and strengthened for the gospel, there's been one consistent factor in it and it's not small groups, it's not expository preaching, it's not miracles or healings or great leadership. It's been persistent and corporate kingdom-centered prayer. Years ago in 1744, Jonathan Edwards wrote a booklet. They used it long titles back then, didn't they? And uh, this is the shortened version of that title. It's a humble attempt to promote explicit agreement and visible union of God's people in extraordinary prayer for the revival of religion and the advancement of Christ's kingdom on earth pursuant to scriptural promises and prophecies concerning the last time. <laughs> that was Jonathan Edwards' title for that book. <laughs> Anyway, it was a call to mobilise people around the world to pray for the advance of the gospel. And Jonathan Edward believed uh, in, in the certain success of the gospel because he believed the promises of God and that prayer for revival was not a prayer for our success or our work or our evangelism. It was a prayer for seeking God in and of himself and for himself. And it resulted in a great forward move in the gospel in the 18th century, didn't it? So can I encourage us all to give ourselves a little more to prayer. Let's, let me pray. Father, thank you for uh, the gospel. Thank you for your word. There's so much to teach us. It's so rich and there's so much there to learn. And we thank you, Father, for the forward movement of the gospel that you are leading uh, through Christ, uh, that you're empowering through your Holy Spirit, and that, you're, uh, that we actually see before our eyes happening as we uh, lift their eyes and look around the world and see what you're doing and look through history. Thank you, Lord, that we can be part of that. We do pray, Lord, that you would bless us, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we might love Jesus more, that we might serve him and honour him in every word, thought and deed, and that we might uh, plead, Father, regularly uh, in our church communities for you to do the work that only you can do. And we pray it in Jesus' name.